Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi there, my name is João, and I'm the host of the New Books in Education, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. Today, we'll be talking to Professor Anthony Abraham Jack in his recent book, The Privileged Poor, How Elite Colleges Are Failing Disadvantaged Students. Professor Anthony is an assistant professor of education in Harvard University. Anthony, welcome to the podcast. Ah, thank you for having me. Yeah, so I, I wonder if you could begin uh, this interview by saying a few words about yourself, your academic background, and uh, how you became interested in, in studying higher education. Yeah, uh, that's actually a great place to start. Um, if it's one thing about my research, it also is part of my own story. I am a first-generation college student, so I'm the first in my family to go to college. Um, actually, my first flight ever in my life my first time on a plane was to Amherst College. Um, so it's like really like this, this, this whole new world. And I went at a time that universities were expanding access by increasing financial aid. They were recruiting more and more lower income students. Universities were increasing the amount of money that your parents could make and you would still be able to go to school for free. So at the time I was going, university said, if your parent, if your household income was like less than $40,000, we would give you all grants and scholarships and fellowships. We would be, we wouldn't give you loans. Now, Princeton began this process in 1998. And when I went to and Amherst College started it in 1999, a year later. And so by the time I got to Amherst College in 2003, there was kind of like a cohort of lower income students, more lower income students there. And we had our share of amazing experience and heartbreaking experience since. And when I went to graduate school, I noticed something. Everyone talked about lower income students in a singular way, right? Everyone talked about lower income students as feeling culture shock, feeling isolated, feeling a sense of difference across the board. As a matter of fact, one group of scholars called first-generation college students a, quote, group of students at risk. They, um, they said that, we, that lower-income students didn't have cultural capital, at least dominant forms of cultural capital. Um, we were just going to fish out of water. But when I got to Amherst, I noticed something weird. And again, this is like my story forcing me to have almost these whiplash moments with the research because the research was half right. I say half right because at Amherst, I noticed that about half my friends actually graduated from boarding schools like Andover, Exeter, St. Paul, Choate, Hockaday, Hackley, um, Thatcher, Right, all these really, really elite boarding schools and day schools from across the country, so high schools that actually cost more 
and look just like colleges, right? I know one student said to me, I got more financial aid from my high school because it was more expensive than the college they were going to. And, but no one was talking about this, this, this diversity among lower income students. No one was talking about this alternative pathway through uh, to higher education. And, and, and these programs have been around for a long time. So programs like A Better Chance, Prep for Prep, the White Foundation, W-I-G-H-T, right? All of these programs are basically funneling lower income black and brown students into these elite prep schools for high school so they can go to Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. And so I was like, well, when I read the race literature, when I read the, the education folks, when I read the culture folks, no one is talking about this overlooked group. So I said, I will. And that's how I came up with the terms in the groups, the privileged poor and the doubly disadvantaged. The privileged poor are lower income students who attend boarding day and preparatory schools for high school. And even though they have shared beginnings, they live ever more divergent lives compared uh, from their lower income peers who stay and attend local, typically distressed public schools, those who I call the double disadvantage. And comparing and contrasting their experiences opened up a new lens to study inequality in higher education because we realized it's not just lower income students who are struggling in higher ed. It's lower income students who we have done a disservice to because of the lack of funding and investment in public K-12 education, where whereas the privileged poor are basically going to have like a little skip, a little hop in difference between their high school and college, the double disadvantage are going to, are, as students told me, a new world. And so I, un, I wanted to unpack that. I wanted to provide a new framework for understanding the experience of first generation and lower income college students that allows us to understand how class, how social class shapes higher education. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. I think the, the book conveys that message um, really well. So you emphasize the experience, the different experiences that low-income students might have during high school, right? Uh, so I wonder if you could expand a little bit more about some of the things that would happen in, in boarding schools that you think might, might feel by prepare students for college environments and specifically elite college environments that folks which are in different kinds of high schools probably wouldn't have the chance to, to experience. Yes, I mean, the reality is, and this is like the gross inequality in the United States, our boarding and day schools operate like colleges. They have multiple fields for practice and for games. They have sprawling lawns. You have people, you have boarding schools that are actually sitting on more acreage than some colleges. But more, but, but that's just the landscape where you get used to opulence, you get used to greenery, you get used to the fresh air and the rolling hills and all that stuff. On the academic side, boarding schools and day schools often recruit teachers from the very schools that they try to send their students to. Boarding and day schools hire more PhDs than their public school counterparts. 
boarding schools and day schools have things equivalent to office hours, right? Where faculty dedicate time to students. The students who I interviewed, when they, by the time they got to college, they'd had four years to practice having one-on-one -on -one meetings with faculty in situations like office hours. Your peers are disproportionately wealthy. So you are not shocked by the Canada Goose jackets, the Montclair jackets, trips to the vineyard or um, second home on the, uh, um, in the Hamptons, um, um, Hermes bracelets and the like, right? You're used to both on the academic and the social side of things, you're much more used to, not immune, not inoculated from, right? You're much more used to it so that you're not as shocked, you're not as, um, uh, what's the, you're not as shocked, you're not as, you're not made to feel bad about not having money because you're, you've come to know not having money in two very different contexts, not having money in your normal, in your, in your neighborhood, amongst your family and peers, and not having money in elite context. The, the, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example. I had a student who had a teacher who had a PhD from an Ivy League school teaching their course in high school at a boarding school. The, this boarding school practiced the Harkness method, where basically you get four or five or six students to sit around the table and the professor sits down, poses a question, and then everybody starts to argue and debate. Real college level seminar stuff. Versus if you go to a public school, especially an underserved minority, uh, over, uh, sorry, underserved, segregated, both racially and socioeconomically segregated high school, your average class size is about 30, 35 students. Your teachers devote themselves to maintaining order more so than making connections, right? The way in which we have underfunded intentionally lower income communities, black and Latinx communities and native communities have left the public schools, especially at the high school level, overcrowded, underfunded and under-resourced. So if you, you, you know, you're comparing a student who is had four years of being one of six one of seven in a class with a PhD professor, with, with, a professor, with a teacher who has a PhD from the school that you're about to go to, compared to a student who goes to a public school where, and this is not me being like hyperbolic, this is me being like actually from interviews, student having to walk through male detectors in school to get to your classrooms, having randomized police, uh, randomized checks in classrooms with police dogs, uh, where fights are more common than tests, where you have to share outdated books, where you have where there are more students than seats. That's the difference, right? And what I wanted to highlight, even though the privilege port, the book that is, is about higher education, it's more than just that, right? It gives us a lens to understand just how unequal K through 12 education is, because if it's one lesson that one gets from the book is we often compare the good public versus the bad public, which is cold for the white public school in the suburbs and the black urban school in the city, right? That's just cold language that we use in racialized ways. 
But sometimes the real inequality is not from the urban and the suburban. The real inequality is between the public and the private because very few publics can compete with the resources that these private schools have because we're not talking about the local Catholic school who's run by the parish on the corner. We're talking about these schools that cost fifty and $60,000 a year, right? We're talking about schools where the average family income is, is, is a half million dollars or more, right? That's what we're talking about. And that's on the lower end for some of these schools. So when you when when thinking about the inequality between K through 12 and how this shines a light on it, the fact of the matter is, and this is where it gets to me, it, it saddens me. On average, 50 percent. So on average, half of the lower income black students at elite colleges are the graduates of prep schools. Now. Some schools can plot themselves on the back. Like, look, we've doubled the number of pale eligible students. We've doubled the number of lower income black students. Yay us. No. Where are you getting those black students from? Where are you getting your lower income students from? Right. That's a that's a question that this book forces you to interrogate, because what it what it really is, they've been hedging their bets. They've been going to Andover, Exeter, Deerfield, all these new, especially these New England boarding schools for their lower income students. And that's problematic because how many students in the country today go to private school? For sake of argument, let's say it's 10%. How many of them are black? How many of those black students at private schools are low income? A fraction of a fraction of a fraction. They get smaller and smaller. And yet you represent 50% of the lower income black students at elite colleges. The pathway to mobility is blocked severely for lower income students as, uh, already, let alone for those who don't get this once in a lifetime opportunity to gain access to schools that are, you know, um, that are resourced more like colleges than, um, than high schools. I wrote a piece for the New York Times and I, uh, in a review of a book, and I added this fact that shows just how unequal we're talking about. Phillips Andover, Phillips Exeter Academy, which is a boarding school in New Hampshire, um, and it serves about 1,100 students, has an endowment that is equal to the three largest historically black colleges and universities in the country. Literally, one high school, one high school's endowment is larger than the three largest endowments of historically black colleges and universities. Over a billion dollar endowment. Right, that's where, you know, when you think about the contrast between having a school with over a billion dollar endowment compared to a school that literally does not have enough money to provide books for every student in the class. That is the contrast that we're talking about. Those are the different, those are the different launch pads that lower income students um, 
um, used to get into school. And until we pay attention to that inequality, any policies and practices that we implement to help lower income students, to support them, to onboard them to whatever it is that we're trying to do, if we don't pay attention to that inequality, if we don't factor in this overlooked diversity so that we can be more tailored in our approach, we will continue to miss the mark. I've been fortunate enough to work with about 60 colleges um, in addressing some of these issues that we can talk about because it's uh, it was important to me not just to outline the groups, but also, you know, not just like say like, oh, this is the problem, but also provide solutions to that problem. And we've done some good work about addressing certain things. Um, and so it's just really, really important for us to, to understand where students have come from. Now, and we can, again, there's also, I don't want to keep, I don't want to stay on just one track because I, one, one thing I want to do in the book is not just show where the privileged poor and the doubly disadvantaged differed, right? How different their experiences are, but how similar they can be as well because they both come from lower income families. They both come from lower income neighborhoods, right? They don't have the economic resources to do the things that their wealthy peers can. So it's not like this universal story where if you go to prep school, your entire college experience is going to be okay. There are things that no amount of cultural capital can combat or buy. And so I'm, I, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about that as well. Yeah, so you've painted that picture of inequality that happens before students uh, enter colleges. So now I wonder if we could shift a bit into how those inequalities actually play out when students are in those elite institutions, right? So you've detailed in the book several examples of how wealthy and low-income families have different experiences, but also at how low-income families themselves, as you described by the two uh, groups of the privileged poor and the doubly disadvantaged, can also themselves have different experiences. So uh, the first kind of category of differences that you point out to, at least in my interpretation, is how uh, those groups have different feelings of belonging to the environment, right? So maybe how they have easier transition into uh, the practices of elite institutions or maybe uh, how they deal with the displays of wealth that it's uh, natural and shocking to some, but not so surprising for those who are already accustomed to it. So I wonder if you could maybe uh, help our listeners understand this differences a little bit better by walking through some examples of how students that have had those experiences before could uh, be more accustomed and have a, a um, easier transition into those elite universities. Yeah, that's a great, that's, that's, um, that's a great place to start talking about the transition to college. I will say the book is organized over three moments of contact, um, meeting your peers, your professors, and then engaging with the policies of the school. Right. So you go from who do you meet first? You usually meet another student. Right. Then you go to your class and then you meet your faculty members. And then you realize that you're in this environment that is dictated by different policies and practices. 
And so by organizing the conversation around interactions with peers, professors, and policies, we are able to see when and how the privileged poor and the double advantages um, experiences um, differ and then align with each other. And so in dealing with peers, the privileged poor have had four to six years to deal with not only wealthy peers, but predominantly white peers in elite environments. They come in much more accustomed to dealing with um, whiteness, wealth, and privilege. So again, the vacation homes, the mentioning of exotic locations, the brands that students wear, right? The Canada Goose jackets that cost almost $1,000, the Montclair jackets that cost almost double that, depending on which one you buy, having a roommate that has one of each, you know, having roommates that can hire a decorator to come in and spruce up their room, the college room. You know, just little small things, because often it's in the mundane where you see the biggest inequalities. Um, and so lower income students and you know, lower income students have a different experience than their than their wealthier peers in dealing with wealth and privilege. But what I show is that the privileged poor and the W's advantage have very, very different experiences. The W's advantage draw very bright boundaries between themselves and really the college as a whole. They don't want, it's like they, it's, it's, it's a, they are, they end up having this very, very hard conversation with themselves where they know they came to a school like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Penn, um, NYU, Columbia, Mich- Michigan, um, Berkeley. They know they came to the school because it was a, it was an elite school. It was one of the best schools. It was the place for them. But their experience on campus make them almost reject any kind of affiliation with these schools. Um, they don't want to be associated with what they view as people who have who don't know the worth of a day's work, who don't know the worth of a dollar, who live, um, as one student kept talking about, make-believe lives. Like there was just one student, Elise, she got so angry because she found out a girl on her floor had access to a private jet and took her and took two friends down to New Orleans for Mardi Gras. When you go in her room, Elise was telling me, you saw pictures of her on safari because she was riding an elephant and all that stuff. She's like, she called it obscene wealth, right? She was like so angry. Like she was like, you could do so much more with your wealth than just riding elephants and flying friends to New Orleans. Like, like there was an animosity that was building, not because they didn't like the person, but rather it was almost a defensive mechanism because they had to, they fell back on an understanding of what worth, what is worth attention, time, and praise. And so to understand their experience, their boundary drawing, right? And saying like, that's for you, that's for them, not for me, was almost, was a a protective mechanism. There were some students who told me, I can't hang around, who, I can't hang around Greek life kids and trust fund babies. Right? So she was associating certain groups and organizations with who she didn't want to be with. 
um, because she's had she had enough experiences of people making her feel less than because she doesn't know um, because she can't afford to go out for a hundred dollar dinner. She can't afford to buy three black dresses to go to consecutive nights of things at a sorority. Um, and so when you when when you begin to think about all of the signals that the W's advantage had uh, receives, there's a single a single note, right? It's like you don't belong here because you can't afford here. And that's just really, really problematic because if the university is saying, hey, come, you belong, we want you, and they get to campus and everything about campus is telling them the opposite, what are they supposed to do? Again, the privileged poor, as they told me, she's like, as one student said, that this is deja vu, right? The buildings on campus are named similarly to the building she had in high school, except the cafeteria here is named is the cafe, the name that's on the cafeteria here is on a dorm at her high school. Right, that's how similar these places are. That even the same funders put their names on buildings at the same schools. And so the privileged poor and double advantage approach approach social life very differently. They the privileged poor are more likely to integrate into campus and see it as a continuation of their high school experiences, except with actually more diversity, because their boarding schools are so white and so wealthy that this is the first time they've had Black and Latino friends more than just that one other person in a class. And, and, so, and so they are more accustomed to dealing with whiteness and privilege. Now, I will say, that's a hard one, hard one skill. I'm not trying to say that that it was an easy process to get used to that because they went to boarding schools that protect students more, even when they say ignorant, racist, sexist, homophobic stuff, right? It's much more easier to get sanctioned at college for saying racist and homophobic things than it is at a prep school. Right, especially if your name is on a building, you your family has been going there for generations and all that kind of stuff like that. The W's advantage just felt like a fish out of water. They felt as if um, even the even the students of color came from so much money, they couldn't find their people. As one student, Shaniqua, told me in an interview, she went to a a, a, a meeting. For the Black Student Association, or Black Student Black Students Association and Union, and she said, "Those were the Cosby kids. I have nothing to do with them, right?" So she, you know, she she was trying to find her people. She was trying to find somebody to connect to, and she was like, "Those are the Cosby kids." For those who get the reference of the old Cosby show. Um, where um, it was a upper middle class family with two professional parents, and so their children had a set of experiences that were very very different than stereotypical um, portrayals of black life, which was typically poor. Yeah, so you've you've been talking about you know those different adjustments to the elite environment and to those different feelings of belonging which arise 
but one thing which sometimes I feel like folks probably don't uh, realize as much or sometimes struggle to uh, frame is how those you know feelings they not only matter to the experiences which happen during the college experiences but they also matter for inequality and mobility right so it's not only a book right so it's not only a book about uh, what happens during the experiences in those elite universities but what I think your book does really well is that it outlines how those uh, socialization processes actually matter for mobility for the formation of inequality right so it's not only a book about uh, higher education. It's a book about mobility. It's about inequality. And I think that that chapter, when you transition to the interactions with professors, makes that very clear, right? So I wonder if you could, yeah, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about, you know, how those uh, experiences of students that, that they had before actually ease their interactions with professors and importantly, how those interactions really shape their opportunities after graduation, for example. Yeah, um, it's a great you know, transition piece because it's not only that lower income students, especially at W disadvantage, feel uneasy with their peers. The research show across the board and, and in a uniform way, lower income students have a harder time engaging with adults and engaging with teachers. Right, think back to Annette LaRose's Unequal Childhood, for example, the classic sociological text. But here's the part that got interesting for me. If you went to a school that, so a lot of the lower income students across the board, both the privileged poor and the disadvantaged, said that their parents told them a variation of this piece of advice, go to school, get good grades, but don't bother people. Right, your work will speak for itself. Right, and so, so it's in many ways, lower income individuals are oftentimes more meritocratic than their privileged peers because they are taught that their work gets them ahead, or at least gets them to keep their jobs. Now, as you know, um, my brother's a janitor. My mother was a security guard at a at a middle school for thirty years. They gave a similar piece of advice, do good work, focus on the work. And, be, and, and, and the reason why is because that's how they kept their jobs for 20 and 30 years. They showed up, they did good work, and they didn't cause a fuss. But in college, and in high school too, in college, just doing the work can get you overlooked. And so the privileged poor come in with an understanding of, oh, I'll just focus on the work. Sorry, the W's advantage come in saying, I'll just focus on the work. The privileged poor, on the other hand, know just how much connections matter. They know the work matters, but they also know that it's not just what you know and who you know, it's who knows you, and also importantly, how well they know you. And so when it comes to office hours, Universities assume that everyone knows what office hours are, right? You know, we can think about this for a second. How many times have we ever had a professor on the first day of class define what office hours are? 
We just assume that when we walk into the room and we say, oh, my office hours are from two to four on Thursdays, everyone knows, everyone has the same language, same vernacular. Everybody understands that coded language. But that's not true. Not everyone knows it. Not everyone has heard office hours from their parents or even attended office hours because their mom was a professor and they and, and they went to those office hours um, when they were um, doing homework because their mom because they would come to the school after they, they got out, come to the college after they got out and work with the parents. Right? And so the privileged poor was like, oh, I knew from day one that I need to make connections with faculty members because that's how you get letters of recommendation. I need to work, go to office hours because going to office hours allows me an understanding of how this professor likes to teach and think about asking questions for tests. Going to office hours is how you just simply connect with people and it's in office hours where a professor becomes an advisor and an advisor becomes a mentor. And those are important transitions the double disadvantage typically refused to go to office hours, not because they didn't value knowledge or value anything. They felt that it was sucking up. They felt that it was cheating. A student's father told her, and, and he was a handyman, he said, Mija, you don't want to get where you are by kissing butt, he says another word, but kissing butt, right? You want it based on hard work. It'll take longer, but if, but you'll feel more proud. She never went to office hours. Her father's advice really shaped her understanding. And again, his advice wasn't wrong. It just wasn't the most effective advice for navigating college because connections matter. Now, when you think about this in upon graduation, right? So let's let's just say this. For one, it matters for your academics. Going to office hours, research has shown, increases your performance in a class. So on an academic front, going to office hours matters for your grades. But it matters for more than that. Letters of recommendation is the coin of the realm for higher ed, for undergraduates, right? Letters of recommendations, introductions, thinking about students when they are not in the room, that's how students get recognized with prizes, fellowships. That's how you win awards, win fellowships. Right. So when you think of a prime example is the Rhodes Scholarship to go to Oxford, one of the most prestigious fellowships you can get, requires up to eight letters of recommendation. Right. How many students, undergraduates, can say they know eight people who can write on their behalf and not just write that, oh, you're really smart, but write a beautiful, detailed letter about who you are, what you do, and what you want out of life because it's in the details that matter, right? It's in the details that those fellowships are won or lost because when you read something, you want something that sticks in someone's mind as they read a hundred applications, so again, different for, different outcomes of mobility are affected by how you connect with those who are gatekeepers in different ways. Now, but let's just put this in the corporate world. Lesson recommendation in college are open door policies at work, right? 
Sorry, office hours, office hours in, in, in college are open door policies at work. If a student isn't comfortable going to office hours in college, will they know how to navigate open door policies at work? Right? How do we begin to understand that? How do we begin to like say, oh, wow, yeah, that is true. We have an open door policy, but it's usually men who are white and who've been in the industry or whose family have been in the industry that keep coming in and they get promoted faster. They get higher salaries. They get more recognition. And you're like, I wonder why. Well, there's an inequality there. Not everyone knows how to navigate open door policies, especially if there isn't direct instruction. So in my work, I actually push for not only um, recognize inequality, but I push in faculty to, to define office hours on their syllabi and in their classes. Like it takes 10 seconds to define office hours, but I've done over 50 professional development trainings about this. And I can tell you to this day, faculty members struggle to define office hours because it's like asking a fish to describe water. You are so immersed in it, so it's so commonplace. It's such a part of what you do that it's almost hard to name it, to define it. It's like asking a chef, or not necessarily a chef who teaches, but asking a cook how to cook something. You're like, oh, I don't measure. I just, you know, sprinkle this, sprinkle that. And it's hard for people. But putting in that work really could open that door to many more students. And I, another example, you know, you know, another example that I, I like to put to people is and talk about how class and specific the vernacular is in college is when you hear the word fellowship, do you think about going to Oxford on a scholarship or do you think about church on Sunday mornings? Right. Those are, you know, like when you say fellowship, that it, it, it is a primary, secondary, sometimes tertiary meaning to these words and context matters. But until we do the work, the extra work of saying, hey, some of us may not know this, but I'm going to do this extra work because the more of us who are in the same space and have a shared understanding, the better things will be. And so in the engagement with faculty, and I expand it to also like, you know, career services, mental health services, because if a student is afraid to go to office hours for help on a test, how likely then are they going to ask for help on diagnosis? So understanding students' help-seeking strategies in a much more nuanced way can actually inform better policies to intervene in students' lives when they most need it. Yeah, for sure. And one thing is kind of complimenting Complementing on that, one thing that you, I think you emphasize well in the book that it's not only the knowledge of those strategies, right? It's having the skills to actually navigate through them. So one thing is to know that going to office hours is important, right? Uh, another thing is to actually be able to go to office hours and actually uh, engage with professors in a way that feels comfortable to you, right? Just as a uh, side note, I remember my first times going to, to office hours as an international student in, in Wisconsin, 
And I was very nervous interacting with, with faculty for the first time, right? So actually being able to, to interact with faculty and being comfortable with those environments is it's also part of part of the process. So as, as, as you mentioned, just the, the first step would be to, to allow the information to be available. So then we can actually get to those other processes, which are also important for uh, students' experiences in schools, right? Yeah. And I'm glad, and I was going to bring up the international piece, especially as we approach the, the the third piece of the puzzle, which is the policies, is even wealthy international students who did not go to school in the United States, the cultural norms of their country may put them at a but, you know, adhering to the cultural norms of their country may put them at odds with the cultural expectations of campus, right? And so, for example, if you come from a country where showing deference to authority is high on the cultural norms, right? Being disrespectful to elders is, is you know, sacrilegious, right? How, you know, how comfortable will you be going to a closed door knocking on a professor's door, knocking on that closed door and say, hey, I'm here for office hours. Unless a professor invites you in. And I, and I like one of the professors, um, a mathematician who I cite in the book, he says, I invite you to office hours, right? And it's not like I'm holding them. I'm inviting you to office hours because this is your space and your time. And many people across the country after the publication of the book said that, well, I'm going to change my office hours to student hours or um, using different using different no, no, different naming system to lower the barrier to entry because it really doesn't, it really, you know, when you use a group to expose inequality, you often, you oft, especially if it's, a, if it's the most disadvantaged group, you often expose hurdles that other groups face as well. Right, especially for international students and thinking about how to engage with adults if you come from a country where deference to authority is paramount. Right. Yeah, so uh, we, I'm just trying to be mindful of the time here. So I wanted to uh, transition into another part of the book, which I think it's also very valuable because we've been talking a lot about culture, right? But you note in kind of that third chapter that, well, culture is not, it's not everything, right? So uh, when it comes to when it comes to those two groups, they have a lot of differences in those prior experiences and the level of cultural capital that they bring into those higher education environments. But at the same time, they are both low-income groups that have their shared challenges in those institutions. So I wonder if you could also speak a little bit more about that and maybe some of the examples that you bring into the book as well. For example, the community detail program as an illustration for that um, insight. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things I didn't want to do is tell a story just about the differences between these two groups, because I think that only, that still paints a partial picture, right? To understand class, to understand how social class shapes higher education, we need to understand the material and the symbolic dimensions of social class. And what I mean by that is cultural capital is symbolic. It has real consequences, but it's not something that you can pick up and go with it, right? It's not something that you can go to the store, it's on the shelf, you pick it up and you go. 
or at least not in the not in the sense that we're talking about. But to paint a fuller picture, I had to understand how money shapes campus life. And the example that I want, I show in the book and I want to highlight is actually food insecurity. I study elite schools. I study schools with multi-billion dollar endowments. I study schools that give full financial aid to lower income students that have rolling campuses and really just like moneyed places. But my research was the first to show how there is food insecurity on these campuses because even though the university is admitting more lower income students, it did not change its policies to close spring, close campus eateries during spring break. At the time that I was doing my study, I did research on all of the lower income, sorry, all of the schools that offered no loan financial aid policies for lower income students. Only one in five kept their dining halls open during spring break. Some schools actually charge students a daily rate to stay in their room and to eat on campus. Now, I'm going to pause there for a second because I want people to realize, to, 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 to understand what that means. A student who can't afford to leave campus now has to pay to stay in their room or the room of someone who's on vacation. One school went as far as to change the locks on the outside of the buildings to prevent entry. That is, as students said, a slap in the face because students, you know, when, whenever people talked about spring break previously in the literature, it was like, oh, lower income students feel sad when rich students go off to um, you know, play in the pool and play in the beach and play in the Alps or whatever and go to skiing in this place and kayak, kayaking in this place. Poor students didn't give a damn where their rich friends went. They were trying to figure out where their next meal was coming from. Because for 10 days, they didn't have access to food. For 10 days, the little money that they had, they had to stretch to buy food in a spot that's already expensive. There were students who, I had one student tell me I went to the dollar store and lived off of everything I could microwave. Another student said I ate one meal a day and just rationed it off. One student fainted in her room. Another student, and I'll never forget this, I was at a conference and I had just given a presentation and this young white student, young white woman, stands up in a room. She had Columbia University stitched across her chest. And she asked me a question. She said, did you notice gender differences in how students dealt with spring break? And I knew where she was going with this, but I wanted her to tell her own story. She said, well, I use OkCupid to line up dates during, for, for spring break. You see, banking on gender norms of older men paying for the first date, she felt that her only option was to use online dating to secure meals the following week. 
she put herself in, in very real terms, in harm's way, if not in danger, especially if someone had ulterior motives or they sensed that she was just using them for a free meal. I'm not saying that she was wrong for what she did. I'm just saying that the universities put universities lack of understanding of the obstacles that students face because of their lack of understanding of how money plays out on campus can put students in positions that they that are very dangerous. Right, the student fainting in her room, people rationing off meals. You know, one person said that I ate so many peanut butter and jelly sandwiches I started to break out because of all the sugar in the oil. When you think about the similarities between the double disadvantage and the privileged poor, it's because they're different, they're differential access to dominant cultural capital. And one could tell that story and stop there, but the more complete story is to remember that they are both poor economically and being on campus with university policies that expect a certain level of income or rather a certain level of privilege provides opportunities to show where they have similarly similar hurdles to face that we can then move. And so to date, over 80 colleges, because of the work, have changed their dining hall policies because of the book. And I, I focus on spring break. But what I've learned from my travels and the book tour and everything is that more universities are expanding it to not only from beyond spring break to Thanksgiving break, winter break, and even trying to address it during the summer. And that's important. Because I didn't, I, in the book, I didn't say I was giving you the full laundry list of problems that students face. And if you check off all of these, your campus is perfect. I wanted, I wanted to rather give a, give a, give a much more a, a framework for understanding how class works so that we don't continue making the assumptions about who and what students know and what they can afford. Right. So, um, again, being mindful of the time, I want to transition into uh, some policy perspectives as well. I, I, I know listeners are always curious to uh, understand the perspective of the author on what can be done, right, in practice. And you've mentioned a couple of things already in terms of framing office hours, in terms of opening uh dormitories and dining halls over spring break and summer. Um, but I wonder uh, about your perspective on other actionable uh, processes that can be done uh, either at the high school level or at the university level. Yeah, I mean, I think we need to be more intentional about how we give help. Um, I think orientation needs to be completely re um, freshman orientation, first year orientation needs to be completely rethought. Because even though, even in this conversation, uh, we haven't used this word as much, even though it was in the context, but students don't come to college, families come to college. And one thing that we need to completely rethink is how we do orientation, because as it stands right now, orientation is 
fall country club visit for wealthy parents. They get to come, they get to go hiking, they get to go to the this, to the that, and they just basically view. And there's no real programming to orient families to campus life. We could do some real, um, do some real um, helping of students if we were to, um, if families knew that going to office hours was what was now expected as compared to something that should be not done and shunned and say, no, don't, don't do that. Don't bother people, right? What would actually happen if parents from multiple backgrounds were in line with some of the cultural norms on campus that elevates mobility, that promotes mobility? I'm not trying to say that, you know, lower income families need to change this and go and like go out and buy Montclair jackets. No. But could you imagine if a student didn't have to call home and lie and say, oh, no, I never I never go to office. I don't bother anybody. But then they literally are en route to office hours and they feel this internal tug of war. You know, that's one thing, you know, like. As a sociologist, and something I get in trouble for this, right? Sociology doesn't necessarily value thinking through policy and practical implications of the work. Education research sometimes is so focused on the practice and the policy that the theory sometimes gets lost. And I try to navigate the, I try to have a balance of both in my research because the more theoretically informed the policy, the more robust that policy will be. And, and so some people are like, well, that's, you're not going far. I'm like, no, no, it's not that I'm trying to limit what universities can do or get them off the hook. It's, I want something informed because I also know that universities love to do pilot programs knowing that they are going to fail. You do a pilot program and three years later it's gone, the university will, will, will have a 10-year excuse to not try a single thing again related to that topic. And you know, there are things that we can do, you know, like I want, you know, greater under greater appreciate. One thing that my work does is there's been a lot of attention around food insecurity in the last three or four years. Um, my research was the first to talk about how food insecurity can be episodic or chronic within the student population. Understanding where it's episodic and chronic helps more tailored policy recommendations because a food bank for undergraduates at Harvard and Yale is nowhere near as effective as a food bank at Bunker Hill Community College because here it would only be used one week a year as compared to at Bunker Hill be used every day because that's where chronic food security is. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to expand the conversation about food security to, a, to, to think about not only increasing pale and increasing food stamp access to lower income students, 
but also to think about where and when food pantries and food banks are most effective and when do universities just need to change their dining hall policies. Those are things that are more um, in tune with what I want to do with policy work is, is to infuse it with theory so that we understand beyond the individual cases that we are looking at. Yeah, wonderful. That's, uh, yeah, that's fascinating. So, uh, Anthony, I think we've already taken up a lot of your time. So I'll, I'll thank you for uh, joining us. Our final question is usually about things that you're working on now and things that you've been transitioning into uh, doing after the book. So I'll uh, let you speak a little bit about that as well. So um, personally, um, I have continued my knitting and yoga, which have been absolutely amazing. Um, so I wake up and do yoga and I knit throughout the day uh, when I want to think through something that's tough. And I mentioned that because, especially for the graduate students and the faculty members, right, you have to fill your tank in different ways. You have to uh, take care of yourself in doing this research because doing the interviews that I did was not easy. Those were heavy interviews. There was a lot of pain, crying, angst, anxiety in those interviews. And I had, and one reason why I wrote the appendix the way that I did was I didn't want, and I, I actually, and, the, and the appendix is not a very, it's not a dry, this is what I did. It's actually a very emotional explanation of the journey of doing qualitative research. And I tried to pull the the, you know, the, the mask off of the bravado of doing research. Like, oh, I did this many things in one day and I never, never missed a day. And there's a cost to never missing an interview. There's a cost to doing nine hours of interviewing in a day. And you have to take care of yourself through all of this. But on the professional side, I am writing a book and it's under contract with Princeton University Press. And it is entitled, tentatively titled, With Campus Closed, Privileged Poverty and Pandemic Life at Elite Universities. Wow, that, yeah, that's fascinating. I'm curious, curious to read it when it when comes out. Well, so thank you, thank you again for your time. I really enjoyed our talk. Really enjoyed reading your book. Again, the book is called The Privileged Poor, How Elite Colleges Are Failing Disadvantaged Students. Uh, and yeah, thank you for talking to me and see you next time. Yeah, thank you for having me.